Welcome to the Dental Billing Academy podcast, powered by eAssist Dental Solutions. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Dental Billing Academy. I have an incredibly exciting guest here today who's not uh, a dental biller per se, but has a remarkable knowledge base and just all of the facts we could possibly need uh, about dental codes and coding and helping us uh, as dental billers to really maximize legitimate reimbursement by using the correct codes and, and reducing those nasty insurance audits, um, a potential for fraud. We are constantly wanting to protect our doctor's license. So that is his number one goal. I have Dr. Roy Shelburne here with us. Hey, Roy. Hey, Amanda, how are you? Good. How are you? I am excellent today. Thanks for asking me to come on. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share with your, uh, your podcast viewers. Thank yes. you. Yes. I am so excited for this episode because you have an incredible wealth of knowledge to help all dental billers. But for any dental biller out there that doesn't know you, let's start off with information about you. Oh, okay. I'm a, a dentist. I graduated from dental school in 1981. I've been married for 42 years, have three children. I'm a business owner. I operated a practice in my grandfather's hardware store for um, 31 years, and I'm also a convicted felon. I went to prison for healthcare fraud, racketeering, and money laundering as a result of uh, billing inappropriate. The action was inappropriate. I was paid things that I wasn't entitled to, even though I wasn't the person who was doing the building. Ultimately, I was held accountable. They did an evaluation of the services I provided for six years, and over the six years, I was paid three and a half million dollars for the services I provided. And the government found of the three and a half million dollars I got that I wasn't entitled to, that amount of the three and a half million dollars was $17,899.57 over the course of six years. And that's an error percentage of less than one tenth of a percent, but I thought that was a pretty decent error percentage. The government didn't think so. So I was found guilty of healthcare fraud, racketeering, money laundering, and I was sentenced to 24 months in federal prison. Spent 19 months in prison, two months in a halfway house, and during the investigation as well as preparation for the trial and afterward, I became an expert on dental billing and coding and documentation, um, primarily to protect myself or to prepare for the trial, um, secondarily to make sure I'm the last dental professional who goes to prison for things they didn't know or understand. So I learned a lot in the process. I uh, have spent a lot of time becoming a very active student for, of the billing and coding, and I'm passionate about being the last dental professional who goes to prison for things they didn't know or understand. So that's the reason why I'm here today. This is why I'm part of eAssist. My, my title at eAssist is Director of Insurance Compliance and Administration. I'm a insurance police. I want you to get every single cent you're entitled to, no more, no less. And I want you to do it in a way that is risk averse, keeps you out of trouble, keeps you out of harm's way. And documentation is a big part of that. And understanding the codes is probably the biggest part of that. You need to know how to apply them, uh, how to use them appropriately, and to select the code that is best representative of the service that you provided in order to describe it to the insurance carriers so they will consider it for reimbursement if it is a covered charge. 
that's my life story in a nutshell. Um, I'm sure they haven't heard a CV like that from anybody else, and I hope they never do again. But like I said, I've learned a lot in the process. Have become an American Dental Association subject matter expert. Have able been able to contribute to their publications and some of the guidances that they've established. Um, and I, I feel very blessed and lucky to be in the position I am today and to be part of the assist. I'm honored. Thank you, Amanda, for having me. I appreciate your, uh, your reaching out. Oh, absolutely. You are a dynamic guest and an absolute example of why doctors should not throw up their hands and say, that's not my area of expertise. I'm just going to have someone else handle it because um, not knowing is not an excuse, right? Um, and likewise for dental billers, this is why it is so, so important to be very diligent um, in what you are billing out to insurance. Um, and if you do see an error that on that was inadvertent, that you do work to correct it quickly because your doctor's license is on the line. Um, and while you could also be held responsible, your doctor and the practice owner will definitely be held responsible. Correct. Um, actually, in actions, they can add anyone who receives any kind of reimbursement from the practice can be considered part of the scheme to commit the fraud. So they can name everybody from dentist, hygienist, chairside assistant, business person down to the janitor if they want to add. They can add everybody because it's a scheme that's conducted by a group of individuals and anybody who gains from that scheme can be named in an action. So everybody has skin in the game. Like I said, I don't want to, well, a lot of speakers say they don't want to scare you. I'm not that guy. I really want to terrify you just a bit, but I also want to give you the tips and tools you need so you don't have to be scared. If you do it the right way, if you, if you understand and you work appropriately to do it appropriately, there's little or no danger at all. If you, you cannot claim ignorance as an excuse, it's not. You are considered an individual if you're in that position with the ability and the technique to be able to do it appropriately, ignorance is no excuse. I, you can't say I didn't know or doctors can't say, well, I didn't do it. My, my assistant did. Well, doctor whose signature was on that claim form well, it was mine. So you put your signature on something that you knew nothing about. How much sense does that make? So like I said, it, there's, there's not a whole lot of defense um unless you literally do it unintentionally and one of the things that i learned in the process was in the definition of intent to defraud i thought you intended to defraud if you sent a claim that you knew was for a service you didn't do or for a service on a patient you never saw certainly that would be intentional fraud but the legal system has a much broader definition it includes what they call blind disregard, which means if you do the same thing the same way, making the same mistake and having no system to identify and correct those errors, that's blind disregard and intent to defraud. The, the legal system assumes that you have systems to identify errors and to correct them and to do that periodically just to make sure that there is compliance and you document you, you did do those reviews that takes the blind disregard off the table. If you just continue to do the same thing the same way and not having a good understanding and making those errors, you can still be named and that's intent to defraud even though you'd think it would be an innocent mistake. Legally, that's not an innocent mistake. So like I said, I spent some time hopefully terrifying you just a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the codes and 
and how to use them. And um, it, the more you know, the less likely you are to make those errors. And there are a lot of questions about the code. So let's talk a little bit about that, Amanda, if that's okay. Ab yeah, absolutely. We are, are scaring you, but like Dr. Shelburne said, going to give you the tools we're not just going to send you uh, off into the dark being terrified of, of insurance fraud. So let's dive right in. As the ESIS Director of Insurance Administration and Compliance, Dr. Shelburne, let's get some history. So okay. how it, did dental insurance as we know it start? That's a great question. Um, medical insurance has been in the world a much longer time. In fact, the late 1800s, uh, they are, began to be a proliferation of healthcare insurance plans, but dentistry lagged behind up until the 1950s. The first insurance, dental insurance plan was administered in 1954. It was on the West Coast, and I can't remember the name of the organization. Let me read it to you here. The International Longshoremen's Warehouse Union and Pacific Maritime Association. They were the first to establish benefits, and it was in um, Washington. Oregon was second, and California Dental Associ Services in 1955. So it's, it's been fairly recent that dental insurance was initiated. And it's, it's kind of interesting. In the beginning, they kept the insurance information on cards, and the, it was all very, uh, very basic in the beginning. There were no dental codes at all. The dentist basically sent a list of the treatment that they provided the patient and the insurance carrier would try to figure out how much they should pay for that service that the doctor provided. So it was all very basic. It was not automated at all. It was one of those uh, <laughs> live and learn as you, as you went along. And because there was a proliferation of insurance carriers from the 1954 moving forward, they needed to establish some kind of uniform way to characterize those services that were provided. So through the process, the insurances got together and put together a code set. And the dentists weren't necessarily in a lot of control. The insurance companies were in the greatest control of what the coding um, codes were. So actually in the it was in the middle 90s, there was this huge blow up about who owned the codes and who was going to uh, administer them. And there was actually went to court and there was a court order that established the Code Maintenance Committee. The Code Maintenance Committee exists today, but it was very different when it was first established. When it was first established, there were representatives from the insurance carriers. There were five of those, or six of those, excuse me, and six six representatives from the dental association. So it was a six, six group. And they had a number of codes that were developed prior to that, that they were using to submit, but um, they needed to be clarified. They need to be expanded. And the court ordered the six, six team, the code maintenance committee. And because it was a six, six mix, six representing the insurance company and six representing the dental industry, there were stalemates. Almost every code maintenance committee, and they were held every two years because it was, it was felt that they didn't need to be updated that rapidly. So the code set was updated every two years. 
that meeting, the code maintenance committee was agreed that they would hold them at the American Dental Association um, building in Chicago. And the six and six would review codes that were submitted for review for either updating, modification. And a lot of people ask, where do the codes come from? Anybody, and that means anybody, can submit a request for a code addition, a code change. Those are sent to the American Dental Association. They process them. They have to be in hand by the American Dental Association by, Association by October 31st. And those are tabulated. They call them inventories, a list of recommended code changes, additions, deletions, and then the code maintenance committee meets, it used to meet in February in Chicago. You can imagine what the weather is like in Chicago in February. It was negative 20 degrees half the time and wind blowing through. So not very pleasant to be in Chicago at that time, but it took two to three days to go through those codes every two years. And like I said, the, the insurance companies would be in favor of it. They would submit a code that they liked to be able to add to the inventory so they could um, basically the insurance company wanted to restrict a bit of the way the codes were used so they would not pay them as often and the dental association wanted to add codes that better describe the services that we provided and expand the code set so that it might increase the reimbursement so six would want six would not want and everything died because there wasn't a majority so there were very few changes up until that part during prior to and during the 10-year court order. That court order expired in 2012. And if you've noticed since 2012, the number of code additions have exploded. You know, prior to there might be one code change, two code change, it was very rare, but in the past, it's now, um, do my math, nine years, um, you're seeing 20, 30, 40 code changes. And the reason for that is the court order expired and the makeup of the code maintenance committee has changed drastically. There are many more dental representatives than there are insurance representatives. And that background or that breakdown, let me go ahead and give you that now. Um, the committee now consists of 24 voting members. So there are 24 at where there were, were um, 12. So they doubled the number. So they have five representatives from the American Dental Association um, one of the members from the dental associations will be chair of the committee. There's a representative from the Academy of General Dentistry. There's a representative from the American Dental Education Association, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the national, and then from the insurance side, National Association of Dental Plans, that's NADP, the American Health Insurance Plans. They have a representative from Blue Cross Blue Shield and a representative from Delta. So that makes up the committee now. So they have five representatives from the insurance world, and then they have 19 from the dental world. So dentists, when they get together now, if, it's in, if they are in favor of the code generally, it will be adopted. And if you're thinking about adding or wanting to add a code to the code set, it makes it, makes it much more likely that the code will be adopted if it is supported and endorsed by one of the groups. So all the specialty groups have a representative there. So um, perio, endo, ortho, uh, oral surgery, all those organizations have a representative as part of the 19 from the dental world. 
And if your code is going to affect, say, Perio, you would contact their representative from the, um, the American Periodontal Association and ask if they can work with them and ask them if they will actually sponsor that code request to the code committee. And that being the case, it's very likely that it would be adopted if it appears it's a code that's necessary. Lay people, when they submit them on their own, it's very unlikely that that's going to be adopted. And it's not because it's not a good request or it would be a good code. It has to be worded in a particular way and there's a format that they, it needs to adhere to. So if it's submitted to the code committee and it may be a code that they like that is submitted by a lay person or by a, a, just a, a regular dentist who wants a code added. But in those events, if it doesn't come through to that committee appropriately, it will probably be tabled and will be worked on by the appropriate group of individuals for it to be then brought the next year so that it would be considered and more than likely adopted if it, it does go through those channels. That's not to say I have seen two codes that were adopted that were submitted by individuals, but they were also good codes and they were close enough to being in the format that was necessary to be adopted. It took a few minutes. They kind of, and the, in the committee, tweaked it a little bit and then ended up working it through adopting. But the easier way to be able to do that to make sure that it does get um, proper recognition and um, it, it, it is considered appropriately, it needs to go through the proper channels, quote, quote unquote, although anybody could submit those. So as I said, they're submitted October 31st. The committee meetings are now in March. And this year it was 12th and 13th, I believe. It's um, Thursday and Friday, and I think it was the second week in March that they, they met. This year they did it vir um, virtually. Prior to this, actually that was the last meeting I, I had attended last year formally away from home before I was restricted um, because of COVID. So I literally flew home from that meeting and then the all travel was, was stopped, meeting stopped, so that was the last one I went to. So the calendar, October 31st submissions considered March now, first uh, of March. If it's adopted, then it doesn't become an active code until the following January 1st. So it's a very long adoption process. And many of the new codes were established as a result of technology changes, things that are, are now um, available for dentists to use that were never available for, before, so CBCT. One of the codes from last year's that was adopted actually broke down the capture of an image and interpretation of an image. And a lot of people thought, well, now I can break this down and now bill for the capture and then interpretation. And they didn't read the code um, completely. The descriptor made it clear that it was read by somebody not associated by the individual who actually captured the image. So there were a lot of people thought, okay, I, we're going to go ahead and capture it today. And then the doctor's going to read it um, maybe next week when they come back from vacation and thought that they would bill it separately that way. It's very specific. And here again, I'm splitting hairs, but with the code, you need to make sure when you look at the code, read not only the code, the descriptor, as well as the nomenclature. The descriptor defines what that code is and how it's to be used, and the nomenclature adds some additional information to help clarify. 
So when you're looking at the codes, don't look at the codes in the simple description because you may misunderstand what it's saying. It will be clarified in what happens afterward. And that's the reason why the code committee can sometimes take a long time. They look at those, they consider uh, what needs to be added so that it's clear what we need to change so that or take out so it's not confused. And in the past several years, they worked very hard to bring everything in line. For example, there were two codes that basically said the same thing. And they didn't want them saying, um, using different words to describe the same thing. So there were a lot of changes to the codes just to bring everything in uh, consistency. So rather than a, a, an interim in one place and um, um, ooh, it starts with a P, I'll think of it sooner or later. But anyway, they are now, rather than being the two separate words they're bringing into the same, and they call those um, um, editorial changes. And it's just, it's not changing the code. It may be changing a word that does not necessarily change the code, but it's to bring everything into order. And you'll see the past couple of years, they've helped to differentiate if it's a maxillary denture or a mandibular denture, a maxillary partial, mandibular partial. So where they just had a partial or a denture code before without having maxillary or mandibular, they're now adding those to make it very specific so that it's easier for the insurance companies to what they call auto-adjudicate. So auto-adjudicate means that the insurance company gets the claim and they don't have to have a consultant review it for it to be paid. So the more specific those codes are, the more likely those are going to be auto-adjudicated because they don't need other information. So when they didn't have the, the upper and lower broken out, you would send the claim in for the partial. And if you didn't specify the upper or lower arch, they would have to then delay the, the, the payment. They would have to get back in touch with the office and go, is this a maxillary or mandibular? So they're trying to make them a little bit more specific. So they'll be uh, auto-adjudicated. So those are some changes that they call editorial changes. There were this in this year's codes, there were several changes, but like I said, I can't be specific about what those are because we sign a, uh, a non-disclosure agreement that says we're not going to talk about those prior to, but there are significant changes in the codes this year, especially there's one section of the orthodontic codes that have been eliminated. They didn't think that that um, definition was needed to be addressed. And a lot of people think, okay, there's a new code added, January 1st comes around, now they send that new code to the insurance company and they expect it to be paid. And 99% of the time it's not paid. The reason being not because the insurance companies are slow in understanding what the codes are, they know exactly what the codes are. However, the plans that that individual bought for themselves and their children or the employer bought for their employees, that plan is written and it specifically lists all the codes that are covered under that plan. If and until that plan is updated and that company or the individual who purchases the insurance is given a new contract that lists that code as being one that's payable, until that's updated, they will not pay it. They can't pay it because that's not listed in the plan that that person is paying for. It wasn't part of that, uh, that plan. It wasn't a code they recognized. Of course, they couldn't, they don't have a crystal ball. They didn't know it was going to be approved. So they cannot start to identify and to pay those moving forward until those plans change. So a lot of people think, okay, we got a new code. Now I can submit this code. Now we're going to get paid for this. Mm -mm. 
No, that has to be added to that plan when that company updates the, the plan that they have paid for or that individual who has bought that individual plan for themselves and their family until that plan updates so it lists that new code. Like I said, a lot of people get confused about that. And I've talked a long time, Amanda. I haven't let you talk at all. What, what, what else do we need to talk about? No, it's like you were reading my mind. Every time I had a question, you immediately moved in that direction and answered it. So my big primary question was going to be insurance companies, now that they are um, much less represented in the CMC, if they were as quick to include those codes and you just answered that. So that is actually information I never knew. Um, that I think a lot of other dental billers don't know. So that's great information to pass on to um, your patients or their HR departments of, of letting them know that there are new codes added and that they should pay attention to what the insurance company sends them to sign um, to help their patients to be able to get treatment. There could be some very important codes. Like you said, there were um, very, they were very few and far bet between earlier, and it seemed prior to, to 2012 that a lot of changes were very minute and didn't really need to be paid attention to. Um, now there could be codes coming out yearly that impact you and the services that your provider um, gives, and especially if you're a specialty office, um, you're going to want to pay attention, and there could be some significant uh, changes for you. Um, I know that, you know, in the last couple of years, there was a new hygiene code um, that was very significant that we're going to have a, another episode just on that um, because it is still one that um, a lot of offices are not really clear on the nomenclature and uh, how to build that code. So um, this is all in incredibly interesting information. Um, so I know you can't divulge too much into the new 2022 codes, but that meeting has occurred and those are already in process. So um, the cutoff for requests is has passed, correct? Correct. The next set will, it can be submitted to the American Dental Association. It will, that will be closed off on October 31st of this year. And then those requests will then be considered in March of 2022 for 2023. So the process is very slow. Um, dental technology is changing very, very rapidly and it, the codes lag behind. So it's, it's kind of difficult for them to catch up. Um, and can we talk a little bit about the future of dental coding, Amanda? Absolutely. Now that you have given us a full history, let's look into the future. And Roy, you tell us in your crystal ball what you see as the future of dental coding. It's just not my crystal ball. It's actually the American Dental Association's uh, crystal ball as well. They actually are putting together a task force to look very specifically at the dental coding structure. And there are going to be wholesale changes. They are looking at adding it modifiers. They're looking at it to be more, more like the medical coding system is now. And to be honest with you, uh, if my crystal ball works any at all, rather than reinventing like the American Dental Association would like to, I think we're going to move into the um, ICD-10 world. We're going to be doing medical coding. What you're seeing now with the CDT, um, 
being very restrictive. The ICD are actually now expanding so that there are more and more dental services that are listed in the ICD-10 code set. And I feel, well, for example, the American Dental Association understand that there need to be modifiers so that for a profi that's very easy, you there's one modifier. If it's difficult, then there should be another modifier because we get questions consistently. Why in the world do they pay the same thing for everything? And one can be really difficult. Why don't we have a difficult profi? And the 4346, the thing that you're going to be discussing, I think is, is one of those. So what we're seeing is the code sets are moving more toward the medical type of di uh, diagnosis prior to treating. And how often do offices submit a dental claim to a dental insurance carrier and they say, oh, we're not gonna consider this until it goes to medical. So they're actually trying to offload that to medical. Um, two reasons being why the insurance companies do what they do. One is money and two is money. Insurance companies, they're, uh, they're very concerned about the bottom line. And if you think about insurance carriers who now have a medical component and a dental component, how many different organizations do they have to maintain? Two, they have a separate building in most cases for their dental division and separate for medical, so it doubles the amount of fee that they're paying. So there is a desire from the insurance company to push this over to medical so that everybody's billing through the medical and they only have one department. They have a medical processing department. So they're pushing it as well to the, to the other side. And if the ICD-10 can be modified so that it's workable, um, why would you reinvent the wheel by putting together a whole new dental coding um, from beginning to end? Why would you completely revamp that when there's something there that exists that we don't have to reinvent? We just need to modify and bring up to speed where it actually speaks appropriately. And all the, although the American Dental Association, not like insurance companies, they're not all about the money, but they may be a little bit. And a lot of people don't know that the, the largest non-dues revenue to the American D Dental Association is paying the license to use the CDT codes. So insurance companies have to pay the ADA, computer companies to load the ADA codes into the software, they have to pay the insurance carriers or the ADA to be able to use the codes. When speakers or consultants play in the, the CDT world, you use codes and you're paid to be able to be consulting or to speak for those, the ADA demands a portion of what you make in doing that to be paid to them to be able to use their codes. Now, if they don't own the codes anymore and we do the ICD-10 codes, that non-revenue or non-dues revenue is gone for the American Dental Association. And not to say that's the only reason why the American Dental Association wants to keep the codes and modify them and be able to license them and to have revenue coming from those. I think that might be a motivating factor for them to try to modify the existing code to make it work. Like I said, if my crystal ball works away, I think it's supposed to or will. Um, that's an effort that probably will not produce the same result that can be um, obtained by using the ICD-10 codes that now exist and by modifying that code set rather than reinventing a whole new one. So if my crystal ball works correctly in the next 10 to 15 years, 
we're going to see that move very dramatically in that direction where we're all doing medical billing and coding. Wow. Well, we will continue to have um, podcast episodes with you so that you can keep us updated on any um, new changes in your crystal ball, because that is extremely insightful. I have learned so much during this episode and I, I know so many dental other dental billers have too. So I really appreciate you giving us all your knowledge and wisdom. And um, if anyone listening is interested in hearing Dr. Shelburne speak more about everything that he knows about because he loves to share all of his knowledge. Um, he is actually teaching some dental zing courses, which are CE uh, credit courses. And um, you can go to dentalzing.com and enroll in those and absorb all of this amazing knowledge. He talks about the importance of documentation, uh, reading the 2019 ADA form, lots of other topics. So uh, if you want to dive deeper into the 2021 codes um, with Dr. Shelburne, that is a, a hugely uh, impressive series that he did um, with CE credits attached to it. So go check them out at dentalzing.com. Um, and then if you have any questions for Dr. Shelburne about coding, about the CMC or anything like that, just email me at podcast at esis.me and I will make sure that he gets those questions and responds to you. So thank you so much, Dr. Shelburne, for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I, I, I have a good time. Like I said, I'm kind of like a wind up toy. You wind me up and I, I, I'm a, I'm a coding nerd. Sorry. No, do not be sorry because um, any information that we can absorb from your coding nerdiness, it just elevates us in our dental billing um, worlds and makes it so much easier to code and to bill when we have this knowledge and this history and understand where these codes are coming from. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Click subscribe now to never miss an episode and find us on Facebook to expand your network.